0: Um, you know, we all know we're a family here, at Rockefeller, and um, you know we, we base a lot of our stuff on family-oriented things and being thorough and things of that nature. And you know, we all know that Jay Z personifies this, which is why he's actually the franchise right now, and the label is built around him. And for now, you know what I mean. But uh, you know, there's very few cats that take all this fame and all this power. Being so hum- and being so humble and nice about it, and we all appreciate that, and uh, you know, on my birthday, I better get all this, too.
1: <laughs>
0: but anyway, uh, you know, Jay's my best friend. I'm not ashamed to say it. know this, we're close and that's that's one of the reasons why we so tight as a family and why everyone in this room that's with us is always is going to get money and get rich because we believe in sharing. And uh, also want to give a happy birthday to my son Boogie. He's my best friend too. Yeah. Yeah. So I say first let's make a toast to Jay-Z and Boogie and life and friendship and then a toast to Rockefeller. Rockefeller yeah. yeah. Rockefeller
2: yeah.
3: From Breaking Atoms comes a new original podcast series celebrating the 25th anniversary of Jay-Z's debut album, Reasonable Doubt.
4: In our fourth episode, we'll be examining the initial and retrospective response to Reasonable Doubt, shining a light on the tight-knit vibes of the Rockefeller Records staff and connecting with the original members of the US street team. This This is Brooklyn's Finest. Reasonable Doubt was released on Tuesday, 25th of June, 1996. It was a great summer for hip hop with a number of amazing records being released. These include Legal Drug Money by Lost Boys, Riding Dirty by UGK, and Wild Cowboys by Sadar X. Ryan Proctor, UK journalist, remembers the reception to Reasonable Doubt and highlights the growing underground and mainstream hip hop divide that was taking place at the time.
5: When Reasonable Doubt dropped, it dropped at kind of almost a crossroads in hip hop whole underground mainstream thing was really kind of coming to a head but that summer of 96 let's say you've got you know Nas's second album dropped same day day states his high drop which is talking about commercial hip-hop the roots had the clone single out which again you know was very much based in talking about commercial hip-hop and their album obviously there was anticipation for that was dropped in the autumn and the underground movement was bubbling as well so that same summer Company Flow had put out their Fun Crusher EP before Raucous this was when they put it out independently there was other tracks coming out like Lace the Booms Cut That weak Shit you know Sick Lyrical Damager you know Scary Thoughts all these underground independent records that you didn't know who these dudes were you'd you'd never heard of them. So at the same time as that was happening, here comes Jay-Z and I think people just, who, people who didn't necessarily take the time to listen to Reasonable Doubt in its entirety thought they already knew what he was delivering on that record and it definitely wasn't the case.
3: Club DJ and promoter Snips was impressed with the cohesion in sound among the various producers on Reasonable Doubt. He also credits Jay-Z's artistic growth to three key individuals in particular. I don't know how much they communicated through the making of the album or how involved there was, you know, how involved the A&R process was to make sure that there was that, but it just... Everything worked, man. Even with um, clubbier records like Ain't No or Can't Knock the Hustle, those were the records that made me skeptical to even think, am I going to enjoy the album? But now when you listen back to it, it's like, all right, they were slightly more uptempo records or or club-friendly records, but they still held the same sound as the rest of the record. They still allowed it to sound like a coherent listen. But I think what doesn't get enough credit is the artist development of who he was aside from how he was packaged and sold to the world. If we have that discussion, we need to talk about Clark Kent. We need to talk about Kane and Jazz. I think they are probably the, the, the most important figures in who Jay-Z
6: is.
4: Historian, Dar Adams, compares Reasonable Doubt's themes, writing and oval experience to fine literature. Ryan Proctor talks about the album not having an immediate impact upon release, but growing in acclaim over time.
7: If you read a crime novel, a noir, crime novel. That's what Jay-Z did. He made it almost elegant to talk about hustling, struggling, trying to survive, and then the drawbacks of being successful and everybody else's reactions to you. That
5: album hasn't haunted him or followed him around in the same way that an Illmatic has followed Nas because it wasn't perceived as being an immediate classic, you know, having this cultural impact. And Whilst at the time, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't shunned. I mean, the source gave it four mics. You know, it got a good review in the source, and even in '96, the source wasn't the the magazine that it once was. But those mics still mattered, and you still listened to what they had to say. So a four mics meant slamming, definite satisfaction.
3: The Source magazine was the hip hop bible. Every month, in their record report section their team of writers would review the latest albums using a
4: mic rating system one mic was the lowest which meant totally whack and the highest honor of five mics was a hip-hop classic
3: some of the albums that received the source's coveted perfect rating include one for all by brand nubian let the rhythm hit em by eric b and rakim and no one can do it better by the doc
4: the source's rating system remains a hot topic among hip-hop heads and rap aficionados to this day For his first assignment at the legendary publication, Charlie Braxton was tasked with reviewing Reasonable Doubt. He talks about enjoying listening to the album, the format rating, and how that caused some contention with Jay-Z and his publicist.
7: The first thing, when I pop the tape in, you know, you get this beautiful music.
3: Because
7: the one thing I loved about the the record, even though uh, Jay-Z thinks I hated the record because I criticised you know, him for his sexist and misogynist lyrics. So from the staff and from the source, I got no static. However, I did get a call from Jay-Z's publisher. We got into a very heated discussion uh, once the review was out. How dare you say these things about Jay-Z? You don't even know him. And I was saying, listen, I listened to the record. I think he's a good rapper. I never said it was a bad record. We were really arguing. I mean, I wrote that and rewrote that and rewrote that because this was my first time in The Source. I wanted to make sure it was perfect. I do recall years later, Tree saying, you know I was on speakerphone and Jay-Z was listening.
3: Charlie Braxton breaks down how the mic system at The Source worked and how the ratings were awarded.
7: It's an average system. Everybody on staff votes, including the writer. The writer gets a vote. And then they average up the mic, okay? So in order for you to get a five mic review, everybody has to say it's five mic. I, I know a lot of times as writers, people approach us and think we're the ones who hand out the mic. We have a vote.
4: Across the Atlantic in northwest London, Nick Raphael and Christian Tattersfield were working at London Records with Pete Tong. Rockefeller Records were making noise with reasonable doubt and making their presence felt on the Billboard charts. Nick and Christian couldn't work out why nobody had signed Rockefeller outside of North America. They created Northwest Side Records as a joint venture with BMG. Once the ink was dry, their first objective was to sign Jay-Z to a worldwide licensing deal.
8: We sat in the finance director's office at BMG because when we arrived there, we had no repertoire. All we had was a label, which we just named because we both lived in Northwest London. That was our common feature. And Christian said, do you got anything you fancy signing? I showed him two albums. One was Reasonable Doubt. The other was Norman Jay or More Protein did Fatboy Slim first album as as a DJ. And I'd signed him as the Mighty Dubcat. And we sat in the office. We literally, had a debate, which one of those two artists were we going to reach out to sign? And Christian, not me at that point, said, we've got a real reputation for being dance music guys because that was our background. Why don't we go after the rap artists instead? That would be totally unexpected. So I said, OK.
9: We were both at London Records with Pete. So he was there doing a show on a Friday night and we were obviously trying to get him to play our records and that kind of thing, but also listening to his show. So I think Pete played Cardinal The Hustle. Pete
8: might have done, but Pete also, and I'm sort of throwing Pete under the bus. And by the way, he's wonderful, amazing, a brilliant AR guy, signed Salt and Pepper, has history in hip hop as well as dance. I told him I was in love with this Jay Z record. He contacted a lawyer in New York who had nothing to do with it, who told me that the deal was a million, told Pete the deal was a million dollars. And I was a kid, I was a baby. He said, you're not doing a deal for a million dollars, but instead played the record on his radio show, which is where Christian probably heard it. So instead of instead of letting me sign him, by the way, thank God he didn't let me sign him because Christian and I wouldn't have got the opportunity to sign him ourselves to our label, which was less than three months later. He played that import version that I got from Black Market Records on his radio show. So Christian is probably correct. In his first hearing, was on Pete Tong and was borne out by the fact he told me, no, you're not allowed to sign it, but let me keep the record for Friday and played it on his radio show.
3: After getting Northwest Side Records off the ground, Nick and Christian travelled to New York to meet the Rockefeller founders at their John Street office to talk business.
8: Christian and I flew to New York. We went to their office in Wall Street and we we went and had a meeting in the office. Damon sat in the desk, Jay sat on the radiator reading radio reports and determining which parts of the country he needed to fly to to do the radio shows or the hip-hop show or the breakfast show or the morning shows. And he was making the plan. Literally the artist, not the manager, not the promo person, the artist. It was unbelievable. And in my 25 years since, I've never seen an artist do that. It was unbelievable. We later that night went out for this meal, Italian restaurant, and their other partner came with, Biggs, and he came to London with them as well, if I recollect and was one of the most unbelievably warm, charming gentlemen I've ever met in my life. We signed it because, you know, we loved the record. We're opportunists who saw a record climbing the chart in America with two brilliant songs and couldn't believe no one had licensed it.
9: We definitely thought there was a catch. It didn't seem to make sense that us two young guys from North London were, you know, we we flew over to New York, we hung out with Jay and Damon for the weekend, watched the World Series, you know, we were bar hopping, restaurant hopping, and we got back and it was one of the easiest deals to do after that. You know, we called them once we got back to London and the deal just got done really quickly. They were having discussions with Def Jam, but that wasn't really working out at that point. You know, we had a record before we went out there. But once we were with them for the weekend, we understood that it was much more important than that.
3: To secure worldwide distribution for reasonable doubt, there was one last T to cross and one last I to dot, clearing Biggie's appearance on Brooklyn's Finest. After getting acquainted at dinner, Dame asked Nick and Christian if they could help Rockefeller to get the record cleared. The sign-off required approval from the legendary Clive Davis of Arista Records. Neither Nick nor Christian had met Clive Davis or had a relationship with him.
8: There was an issue with the clearance on that record and we worked at BMG and we were asked at the first meal whether we could get clearance. Christian being Christian is very matter of fact, me being exuberant told them that we were like that with Clive Davis. Neither Christian nor I at that point in our career had ever met the legend that it's Clive Davis, who ran Arista Records. And I said, don't worry, we'll speak to Clive and get it cleared. When we finished the meal that night and went back to our hotel, Christian was berating me in the taxi, telling me, how can you promise something from a guy you've never met? So don't worry, we'll sort it out. Unbeknown to us, in the period between us being with them, getting back to London, and in two weeks we negotiated the deal, Arista Records cleared uh, Biggie's performance and we were credited. I was very clear with Damon. I said, we did nothing. And the more I protested, we did nothing. The more he thought I was being humble and respectful. And Christian was just like, you cleared it. I said, I didn't.
4: Following that first meeting, Rockefeller and Northwest side were comfortable with the idea of doing business together. Terms were agreed pretty quickly with Nick and Christian being excited at the opportunity of distributing the album to an even bigger audience.
3: They returned to New York 13 weeks after Reasonable Doubt dropped on the same day the infamous Rockefeller Billboard advert was shot to
8: officially sign the deal. I remember it very clearly. They did a very famous advert in Billboard, which is quite controversial. And we were the day they did the photo shoot, we arrived to meet them. That was the day we met them to sign the record. I'll always remember that. They were all excited about this crazy photo shoot with them with their fingers up. Biggs is in the photo as well. And we turned up. I remember wearing, it was very trendy at the time as a record executive, to wear jeans, lace-up brogues, right, And, and raincoats, long raincoat, max, yeah? It was so English. And we turned up, and the woman on
9: reception said, are you the police or the IRS? We're like, no, we're the two English dudes come to sign J. With the funny accents. We did not look the part, I can tell you. We were not hip hop.
8: (laughs) We were definitely not
9: wearing hip hop. And we're not pretending to be hip hop today.
8: But you know, the funniest thing is, by signing Jay-Z, we get to be part of hip hop history. And I'm really fucking proud of it. And every time I've seen Jay-Z since, we've both seen him in different capacities now, and uh, hasn't forgotten that we were there at the beginning, which is really, really nice, because when you become that bigger superstar, you know, you can, fig- you can forget the beginning, but Jay's not that person.
3: Another legendary figure from the UK went to New York and dropped by Rockefeller Records' John Street spot for an impromptu visit. DJ Shorty Blitz shares the story of having a chat with Dane where Dane flexed his hospitality skills and made a cup of tea for his wife. My first time in New York, I went to the Rockefeller offices. I was with my missus at the time. We just went, to yeah, just go have a look because I think there was somebody in the promotions department that used to send records to me for the radio show. Like we, we sat and spoke to Dame for a good hour. He wanted to find out how we were feeling, Jay, the stuff that we heard so far.
7: And yeah, whatever you need, made made my, my missus like tea and just sat and just spoke to us on just on a, on a cool level. The grassroots approach
4: of the street team promotion was invaluable in the nineties. When Nick and Christian were in New York to visit Jay, Damon, Biggs, they spotted the infamous white Mercedes-Benz with the Rockefeller logo. Nick recalls seeing Jay-Z handing out CDs and flyers to the public from the car.
8: Can I share one thing, which Christian remember? They were driving a 190E Mercedes. I remember the car clearly because it was like entry-level Mercedes. had a white, it had a Rockefeller logo on the front. And on the way to the restaurant, Jay-Z himself was leaning out the car, handing flyers and CDs.
4: Pain in the ass, the voice from the album's intro, returns to explain how Lenny Santiago, a key part of Jay-Z's inner circle, drove the car throughout New York City to raise more awareness of the Rockefeller brand.
6: Lenny, Lenny was definitely Lenny was in charge of that. And it's like going around the whole city. And now Rockefeller is much bigger at this point. Now people know who Jay is. And Lenny was so smart and, and so advanced also that he was able to carve a niche for himself too, because he was doing that, but he was also taking a lot of pictures of Jay. And he would take flicks of everything, all his shows, everything. And he was able to have a lot of footage that now is worth so much because, you know, at that time, nobody was really doing that. Pain in the
3: R started at Rockefeller as an intern. He explains how he got the job through a friendly hookup and made himself valuable to the squad.
6: Ray Ray was at a round the globe penalty. So we were underneath him doing street promotions with Sean Peckas. Sean Peckus is now the president of um, Rock Nation Sports. So we were all together. And what happened was Ray Ray was roommates with a, a, a man named Garnett, God rest his soul. He's no longer with us. Garnett was the main radio promotion person at Payday Records. They came to Garnett because they had a connection with him. I'm like, listen, why don't you come work for our label? And he said, you know, I'd love to, but right now I'm established here at, at Payday. Why don't you let my roommate do the radio promotions over there? He's a great guy. He's doing it over at around the globe slash penalty. So Ray took that. Yeah, I called him up one day. I was like, hey, Ray, let us do what we're doing over at penalty for you, you know, because Jay-Z was huge back then.
4: Ingenuity was a hallmark at Rockefeller. Using foresight and giving chances to those who showed hunger and initiative, Jay Damon Biggs made it a point to hire emerging talent in the music industry. Pain in the Arse explains how Lenny S. Yes and Burt Blazon came to the label and name drops other essential players like Carleen, Shaka Pilgrim, all of whom helped to shape the success of Rockefeller and became big time shot callers in the entertainment business in the following years.
6: We've seen Lenny and Bert up at the label. They were hired to be on the street team and they were a little older than us. So, you know, they kind of took the reins and they did so well. Oh my God, Lenny and Bert and us, like we were like a team that would, would do that. And that speaks to the opportunity at Rockefeller that. These four guys that you see, these other people, Shaka Pilgrim, all these people, we all started out as interns. We all started out on the lower level, the mail room, if you will, of the label. And now look where we're all at today. Lenny S. is one of the most important men in, in, in music. Shaka Pilgrim is one of the most important people in entertainment. Carleen, who was Jay-Z's first assistant, was also an intern with us. She was Jay-Z's right-hand man and made all these things happen. So that's what Rockefeller really was. I don't think that you would have gotten that in another label, that, that people that came in like that would eventually take over, if you will. That's, that was the opportunity that Damon and Biggs and Jay-Z allotted us to have.
3: Street team promotion wasn't just confined to New York. As Rockefeller's success grew, so did the marketing operation. Chezik Sonoda talks about spreading the gospel of reasonable doubt in the Midwest and being outside on the front line.
1: I was the one that's like holding a picket sign shouting on the street, like, yo, come through Jay-Z, you know, type of thing. That's more my, those are more my story. Um, I do remember though, that like once a month there would be a 12 inch that would show up with cash. And and you're just like, yo, word. Like um, that was what was dope. I think about the street team is that We were, it was just, I hate to use the word grimy, but you just like got in there and did it right. Like you did what you have to do. I just, I also just remember being up like late nights before like doing a show type situation and then having to drive to Milwaukee and hit up the stores right before they were going to, you know, cause we were, we would take them around, you know, the whole like kind of Midwest area. So you'd have to like be up till two o'clock and then get up at six to make sure you were like had everything set up.
3: Rockefeller Records fostered a family feel and community spirit where everybody worked for and with each other. Maria Davis, host and founder of Mad Wednesdays, explains why the making of Reasonable Doubt was a team effort.
2: It's the family album. That, that's it right there. That's what you can say about Reasonable Doubt. It was a family album. I know he had a successful the blueprint and all that, but nothing will ever Take the place Of reasonable doubt
4: DJ Clark Kent Highlights the inclusive nature Of the creative process
2: We were all a part of it Like I've said this before Yes It's Jay's album But it's also Beehive's album And Tata's album And Emery's album And Big's album And my album And Dane's album It's the whole Crew's album Because Everybody's Thoughts Came into play you know what I'm saying? Like, it wasn't just me and Jay and Dane. It was me, Jay, Dane, Big, Ski, um, Tata. Like, Emery, those voices were loud and reasonable doubt. It's the reason why it took me so long to agree to do a hook on Brooklyn's finding. I was looking at that shit like I'm not doing it. I had to figure out what the hook was going to be and then go in the booth and do it. And beg Dane, don't tell him. Because in the crew, it's like, yeah, I'm not a rapper. I'm never going to rap. And then I end up rapping this hook. But because the voices were so loud, like I could hear High going, you ain't no fucking rapper. I could hear Ty going, nah, Claude, you ain't no rapper. I could hear that while I'm in the booth being a rapper. So it took like eight hours to get that done. Eight hours for me to finish that little piece of hook because I'm like, I'm going to get crucified by my crew.
3: The Rockefeller family, which would later be known as Rock Familia, wasn't just confined to those in the camp. The crew love extended to the fans as well. Culture journalist Robin Moat remembers her father introducing her to hip hop by playing Reasonable Doubt around the house?
1: I was so young when the album dropped. I was literally like four or five years old. And so I remember hearing it in the house. I remember hearing it. My dad, he's had so many cars, but I remember hearing it in his cars. And I bring him up mainly because my dad was really my introduction to hip hop. He's from Jamaica originally, but at seven, he moved to Brooklyn. And so my dad was, he's really a big Jay-Z fan. And so typically in the house, he would be playing stuff like Reasonable Doubt as the years went on. He was playing volume two.
4: Pain in the ass points at the high level of talent in the Rockefeller Media and extended network. He also reinforces the importance of Kareem biggs you
6: know, We also got blessed that we were not just a family, but we had a lot of talented people within that family. You got Irv Gotti. You have DJ Clark Kent. Clark Kent is a legend. I think that speaks to Rockefeller that, Jay Z is not Rockefeller. Jay Z is all of us. We, we helped and in, in, in contributed in whatever we could. Biggs put up money. And I get very upset when I hear Biggs as the quote unquote silent partner. Biggs wasn't a silent partner. Biggs is one of the smartest people you're ever going to meet. And if it, I consider Biggs to the three of them what Jan Master Jay was to run DMC in the sense that Russell said, you know, dress like Jay, meaning Jan Master Jay. Do what Jay does. Jay is the streets. A lot of that was Biggs. Dressed like Biggs, Iceberg, all that. Biggs had the watches, the oysters. Jay did a lot, of, a lot of the words and the terminologies that Jay would use in rhymes. It was all big stuff. So Biggs was not a silent partner. Biggs was one of the most important people in the whole ensemble. And that, of course, accompanied by the greatest lyricist of all time.
4: At the heart of the Rockefeller family was Dame Dash. David Lotwin, co-founder of D&D Studios, describes how Dane would provide support to Jay-Z, which would enable him to have the creative freedom needed to be a productive artist.
7: So Dane was man cool. I, I probably had more of a relationship with him because it was the business than I really did with Jay. We would give him credit. I don't remember what it was. It was five or $10,000, know, but they didn't have to pay as they went. But if we got to that point, he would come in more than once, with shoeboxes full of money. So fives and singles and occasional ten. So, you know, if he owed $5,000, let's say, he would pay. The, he'd come in with two shoeboxes and say, here you go, one." Jay was lucky enough to, to have Dame and Biggs and be part of an incredible structure that went on to change the world. Ian
3: Iandoli, author and journalist, likens the relationship between Dame Dash and Jay-Z to the left and right sides of the brain.
1: I think every artist or every project needs a left brain and a right brain. And I think Dame Dash with the left brain. Artists struggle. Like, when an artist is putting together a project and they're the ones who are handling the creative and the, and the money, it's sometimes an impossible feat. You need somebody whispering in your ear. Every success story, regardless of how long it lasts, is anchored by having a left brain and a right brain. And it, it's impossible for one person to be both.
3: David Lottwin, Ryan Proctor, Ski Beats, and Maria Davis lament further on Dame Dash's focus, drive, and energy.
7: In a way, he was the captain of the ship. He had a vision. He was part of that vision,
5: him and Biggs. Dame Dash, in terms of what he did and what he went on to do, is importance to everything is is immeasurable. I looked at it the same way that you see a fighter walking into the ring and he's surrounded by his team. He's got the trainer, he's got the manager, he's got that. They're not getting in the ring with him. I don't think one without the other would have necessarily been able to get to that next stage.
2: Yo, Dame is the same Dame with $1 or $100 million. He's always been the same exact person, Hustler. He kind of instilled that in
3: everybody around him. You know, you're around him so much, you know, you can't help but just say, you know what? I want to be a hustler
2: too, you feel me? He just always brought that, yo, we got to we got we're gonna make this happen energy around. Gonna do it. We don't care. Can not nobody stop us. We the best. That was his energy all the time. Damon Dash was the, the 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 real force behind it. He did not let the record company people bullshit him. That's why when they didn't feel the payday was doing them right, they went on and moved and got their own. They said, "Oh, why well, you don't want to treat us right? but we gonna create our own." Not knowing where reasonable doubt would be today.
4: In the later years, it became customary for Rockefeller to give crew members with chains of the label's logo. Before the Golden Diamonds, Rockefeller presented jackets to those on the street team to engender a sense of belonging and togetherness. Pain in the Arse recalls an interesting moment between him and Jay-Z as he was blessed with his made-to-order garment.
6: They wanted people to know that, yo, this is a, a crew. That guy over there and that guy over there buying a bar, he's with us. We're all together. So they made the jackets up and I happened to be there and they were like, We want to make one for you, too, and and Tenza. They go, what do you want your jacket to say? I was like, you know, pain in the ass. That's my name. I'm like, all right, cool. So I got this jacket. It says pain in the ass. I remember Jay looked at it and was like, damn, you got a whole sentence on your thing. Because, you know, it says, like, Mike, Dave, Fred, Joe, Chaka, uh, Omi. Mine says pain in the ass. It's like long. It was a huge deal to have that, and I was so blessed that they – I'm a newcomer at the time that they gave me that jacket. It was like a chaining day in itself at that moment.
4: Family members help each other in times of need. Pain in the Us recalls a personal moment with Jay-Z that helped him make sense of his own anger issues as a result of grief and bereavement.
6: Remember, Jay grew up without a father. So he has that drive in him that no success in the world can fill that void. So imagine, you you hear that in a lot of his raps. My father left, he's still alive, but fuck, you know, like he's angry about that. You know, that has never left his system. And it goes to show you how great of a father he is with his kids that he never wants to duplicate that. I thank God and him found a way to channel that anger. I remember one day in the office, I was very angry and I was yelling and cursing and this and that. And we were talking, him and I, and uh, I said something, you know, I was like, Yo, this you know, this sucks. Everything sucks. This and that. He said, why are you so mad? I said, like, you know, I don't got a mother. You know, this and that. He goes, make that work for you. I like, what? I so make that work for you. And you know how Jay talks. I like, go, what the hell are you talking about? Make what work for me? I'm I'm pissed off at the world. Make it work for you. And he walked away. And now looking back, he was right. I made that work for me. I took a negative and flipped it into a positive. And for him to say that, make that work for you, now makes perfect sense to me. As only he could say that.
3: On the next episode of Brooklyn's Finest.
6: This is the hustler. Like the true, bloody, cold-hearted
3: Reagan-era hustler Jay-Z. And not only did he define the hustler, he defined the era. He puts you in a period. It's a period piece. It might be one of the greatest period pieces that articulate a time in New York history that solidifies not only
6: a coming of age, but a changing of age.
4: For finest, The Making of Reasonable Doubt by Jay-Z, it's a Breaking Atoms production. This series is produced by Sumit Sharma and Christopher Mitchell and is mixed and mastered by Dave Walker. To stay in the loop and receive episodes as soon as
3: they drop, follow and subscribe to Breaking Atoms or search for Breaking Atoms wherever you listen to podcasts.